Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. All right, Dr. Michael Corrin, we know you're the man behind the white coat, all right? But what about behind the scenes? Tell us about JCCR, Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research. Well, thank you for asking, and thank you for that plug. <laughs> <laughs> so Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research was started in 1997, and it was based on my interest in running a clinical trials organization. And getting back to this whole concept of the truth, Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research is a legacy of what is happening in the current world, whereas we have these organizations that are set up just to discover the, cl- the truth through clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So isn't that crazy? So like, how did you discover the truth in medicine before? Right. All right. So let's, Great just, question. let's just think about this historically. So back hundreds of years ago, we had progress and technology moved forward, but it wasn't based on formal hypothesis testing. So when the, the Wright brothers made their airplane or uh, cars were made or going back even further, um, when people made discoveries about electricity and other things or Columbus uh, used dead reckoning to navigate to, so he can go to and from uh, across an ocean, come back. This was all based on trial and error. So you tried something. If it worked, great. If it didn't work, you either died or, or f- fixed Figure it. Figure it out, right. yeah. So you know, the Wright brothers just used trial and error. They had some wind tunnels and other things that they made up. But it wasn't based on formal hypothesis testing. So they didn't do experiments uh, in the way that we do them today. And so it was more of a tinkering culture. And then in the early parts of the 20th century, the concept of hypothesis testing became well-known and it became validated. And then ultimately, it had a huge impact on medicine. So starting in the late 50s, early 60s, we started to do clinical trials, which is a manifestation of hypothesis testing. And And let me make sure everybody understands why that's important. So, you know, in the time of a Galen or a Galen, um, he would try something, and if he didn't drop dead, it, w- it worked. <laughs> it worked, right? right? And he tried it twice, and he didn't drop dead, and it really worked. And he tried it three times, and he didn't drop dead. Oh, my God, it's a miracle. And it became and, a and, truth. Right, and that became a truth. But And, and maybe I'll even grant to you that if you tried this bark, this tree bark, by the way, aspirin came from tree bark, and that works. Mm-hmm. So he would probably prescribe some ch- you know, bark that was chopped up, and he gave it to his patients, and their headache went away, and... and that actually probably did work. But what, what you never knew is that would that work in everybody on average? So even if somebody tried it and it worked or tried it, it didn't work, they can say the truth for them was it didn't work for me or it did work for me. But you didn't know if it worked for the public. Mm-hmm. And, and believe it or not, we didn't know that until the 20th century. So you use something like digitalis, which was used for hundreds of years before it was proven to have some efficacy. People are using it. They actually use it initially for edema in the legs because it helped the contraction of the heart and helped push out some of the extra fluid. So there was a observation, empiric observation, that this herb was able, it came from the foxglove plant, and this herb was able to help people with edema. Mm. 
and we knew that it worked for some people. They got it. Their edema went away. Other people, they took it and they died. It didn't work for them. But we didn't know if it worked in general. And that wasn't studied until 250 years later. Mm. And nowadays, we have these enterprises that study these things using hypothesis testing so that we know the truth for the population. And these enterprises are called clinical research organizations, and they could be at academic universities, they can be private like ours, or they can be some you know, government mix or private partner partnership, et cetera, et cetera. And what has happened over the years is that the demand for this hypothesis testing and this truth discovering process has grown tremendously for a couple of reasons. And one of them is from a regulatory standpoint. So, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the FDA would approve products with relatively little information. hundred years ago, FDA approved products just because you registered them. Mm. And it was only uh, basic safety information was required, you know, starting back in the you know, 1930s, 1940s. And the actual data that showed something worked wasn't even required until the 60s, mm. believe it or not. Yeah. And then in the 60s, you know, was some early successes. So one of the most important clinical trials that was done was with birth control pills, which were first approved in the United States in 1960. And that had a revolutionary effect on our culture, of course, and, and was, this was a breakthrough. But, the, but that, the first product that was approved was approved based on about 100 women. That's it. That was it. I th- they, it the, the researchers made it look better. They said, I think, they, we said we have uh, 10,073 menstrual cycles that we studied. So it's a, it sounded like more, right. but it was actually 100 women over you know, about a year. Okay. And um, we didn't even know if those women had sex that weren't you know, necessarily looking at that. So, but the bottom line is that we, we, we approved, the FDA approved a very, very important product based on very limited data. But that would never fly nowadays. So I'm a cardiologist. I do a lot of things in preventive cardiology, and there's been a huge change in the amount of data that's required to prove something. So uh, when I was a when I was a resident in the late nineteen uh, late nineteen eighties, the first statin drug was approved called Lovastatin, and that was approved on several hundred patients. I think it was like maybe uh, four or five hundred patients that got approval based on that. And um, back in those days, there was a lot of concern about the safety of the statins. And when we first got Lovastatin, we were really excited that we had a drug that really lowered cholesterol significantly. But we had to do all these safety checks like eye exams and thyroid function tests. and Before ha- you could even prescribe. Well, it. as we were using it. Yeah. We actually, there was some talk about doing sperm counts on men mm-hmm. for these things, all these crazy things that we were asked to do to show the safety. Well, nowadays, all that gets embedded in the enterprise before a product gets out in the market. So um, between 1980s, late 80s, when Lovastatin was approved to the early 90s, when Atorvastatin was approved, Lipitor, they had, went from a few hundred patients to 3,000 patients. Significant difference. Right. So there was an increase in the amount of data that was required. And that's when I cut my teeth in clinical research mm-hmm. during that period of time. And I actually was very privileged to be part of the Atorvastatin development program early on. And I learned a lot through that development program. And that was one of the first major drugs that required significantly more data to get an approval. So again, it went from a few hundred to 3,000. But between the early 90s, when Atorvastatin uh, was ultimately approved in 1997, but it was being developed in the early 90s, between uh, 87 and 97, uh, there was this increase from a few hundred to 3,000. And then by the early aughts, when Resuvastatin or Crestor was approved, they went from 3,000 to 10,000 patients oh. to get it approved. Wow. So the, 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 the demand for data has grown exponentially. 
And with that demand for data, we have a demand for clinical research organizations. Mm -hmm. So we launched Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research in 1997 to meet that demand. And it, it was a unique model for the time, and still, I think, fairly unique, in that we were able to get a group of, of physicians in the community to participate in clinical research. And these are all really smart, a lot of uh, academically trained physicians. They're mostly in private practice, but still had an interest in research. And we were able to get them involved in clinical trials through this organization and allow them to access, allow us to access their patients and give those patients the opportunity to participate in clinical research, which we can talk about is a wonderful thing for people to do. Yeah. So walk us through that process. How do you do, how do you decide what you're going to do a clinical trial on and then the steps for gaining those patients and bringing them? Sure. Sure. And, and, and so that's what we do. So again, the enterprise is built based on this need for data and that's grown. And just to finish the point, um, you know, for the the COVID study, the vaccine mm -hmm. studies, yeah. they needed forty thousand patients. Yeah, and we were a big part of that. We you know provided hundreds of patients for those studies. So, getting to your your question, we have a team that um, will look at the studies that come our way, and we're pretty well known in the industry. We are asked to participate in many, many trials. Other trials we are interested in scientifically, so we reach out to the companies involved or the government, if it's a government-sponsored trial, or whoever it may be, who's sponsoring the research, and say that we're interested. We study the protocol. The protocol is a little booklet on everything that's involved with that particular study. If we think that the, the protocol is ethical, we think the protocol has value to our patients, if we think the protocol can be executed in our community, then we'll, we'll negotiate a contract, and basically we'll get paid by the sponsor to produce data to fulfill the contract. And typically we would do a contract for whatever number of patients is appropriate for that study. So it may be 10 patients for a study that is, you know, very, very tricky that will have a relatively small patient population, or it could be a couple hundred for a vaccine study where we're looking for just people in the community. And then uh, as far as finding the patients, there's a lot of advantages to the patients and we've done other podcasts that go into it, but just, you know, mm -hmm. broadly uh, people, get incredible attention in clinical research. And they're not getting that attention so much in practice these days. Mm -hmm. Practices are all about throughput, getting numbers in. If you get you know, six minutes with your primary care physician, you're lucky. In the research world, and again, that's nothing against primary care physicians. You, you guys do a great job and, and you're working really, really hard. And that's just the reality of what we're forced to do. And, and I'm in the same position when I see my patients is that you constantly have to get to the next patient, just the way the system works these days. But research is different. Is research you come in and literally it's very nurturing, and we're getting into a lot more details. And so, if you went to a cardiologist and say, you know, you know, my nose itches um, when I when I eat Indian food, and the cardiologist is going to you know roll his or her eyes and say, okay, great, uh, talk to your primary care physician about that. But if you come into my study and you say that, we're going to write it down mm -hmm. because we have a responsibility to report that to the Food and Drug Administration and determine whether or not it's a crazy side effect of the, of the thing that we're looking at. So that's not for everybody, but a lot of people like that attention. And quite frankly, that's human nature is that we have, like weird things are happening to us all the time and we don't really have anybody to talk to them about. Well, and the, but you need those people so yeah. that you can dive deeper into exactly. into their symptoms and, and what's happening. Yeah, and so that's one reason why people do it. People also will often get the product. They're not guaranteed to get the product in many studies. Some have placebo-controlled uh, elements to them. Some are open-label. But uh, some of them get products that treat something that's not treatable. So an example of that that we've recently talked about is called lipoprotein little a. 
Mm-hmm. And this is what we call the very, 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 <laughs> very bad cholesterol. And it's a, kind of a form of uh, LDL or bad cholesterol that's really, really nasty that runs in families and that is very highly associated with bad outcomes, heart attacks and strokes. And there was no way to treat this. Statins didn't work. And now we have products that we have tested in clinical trials that lower this bad lipoprotein by 90%. And people who volunteered for these studies had access to those products. And a lot of my patients who didn't have a solution now have a solution. So that's another reason why people get involved in these programs. People get paid for some of these programs. Um, you know, they're, for some studies, it's relatively modest. For others, like the early phase studies, can be significant. And they can be uh, enough money to go on a vacation at some point. But yeah, we, don't, we don't like to talk too much about that because that's not a good, necessarily a good reason. But the truth is it's a reason that some people do it is they do get reimbursed for, for their, their time and effort. And legacy is a big thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to do something so they can give back. They want to do something so that their kids and grandkids will get some benefit from their experiences. So that's a huge driver for a lot of patients. And then a lot of people want to be part of our team. You know, they... We have people that are just fans of the organization and they want to be part of our team. So um, there's a lot of reasons that people do clinical research and uh, we highly appreciate the volunteers and that's what runs the show ultimately. I'm your host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data.